Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Considering how consistent the recent film awards have been, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes and the Oscars all went pretty much the same way this year, you'd think everyone would have been in agreement about last year's movies. Sadly, no. Audiences and critics were deeply divided over many of the films in contention for best film. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Ow, Joe! But these are disputatious times around the world, and there's no reason why films should be exempt from that. Comic book blockbusters versus true cinema. Old white males versus the new woke generations. Boomers versus millennials. Liberals versus conservatives. It's probably too much to expect mere movies to bring these warring factions together. We get into a fight. I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. And I think all that lethal weapon horse shit is just an excuse so you dancers never have to get in a real fight. But while audiences have never seemed so divided, hit movies still have to win over enough of them. Hit movies, now that the Oscar season is over, are what the film racket is really about. And hit movies only get funded if they offer the investor apparent guarantees. And the person with the quizzical brow? That is his good friend, Mr Darcy. It's <gasps> miserable, poor soul. Miserable he may be, but poor he most certainly is not. Tell me. 10,000 a year. And he earns half of Derbyshire. The miserable half. <laughs> Twenty years ago or so, one of these guarantees was the allure of 19th century novelist Jane Austen. Her half-dozen novels, including Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility and Emma, were catnip to viewers on the big and small screens. Now, a new version of Emma has arrived with a script from New Zealand's Booker Prize-winning novelist, Eleanor Catton. Speaking of New Zealanders, a Kiwi co-production with Canada and Ireland marks the directing debut of the founder of the incredibly strange film festival, Ant Timpson. It's called Come to Daddy. I know what's happening. You got no idea what's happening here. Ever been in a fight? I once have kicked the guy's ear off. Later in the show, I talk to Ant about his new career as a director. But first, a man who's been directing films for nearly 50 years and acting in them for 65. The seemingly indestructible Clint Eastwood is back with a film called Richard Jewell. His accusers are two of the most powerful forces in the world. The United States government and the media. I do want to help y'all on law enforcement too. 
Even pushing 90, Clint Eastwood continues to make films. Off-screen, he's crotchety, even more right-wing than ever, which is saying something, and seemingly long overdue for retirement. But on-screen, he's a marvel, particularly his directing. Richard Jewell is as sharp, direct and fat-free as anything he's done in the past 20 years. Let's get a new tape going. All right, Richard, here's what we're going to do. We need a voice exemplar. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. The true story of Richard Jewell takes place during the 1996 Olympic Games of Atlanta, Georgia. But Eastwood is careful to set the scene first. Jewell was a hard man to warm to, a disgruntled wannabe cop who kept being turned down by the force. He took jobs that were the nearest things, though, private rent-a-cop gigs at universities and notably security guard at sporting events. I'm sorry, I was listening. I didn't mean to be rude. I wasn't raised like that. You know, he started every sentence with I. I'm sorry, sir. I'm the new... I'm the supply room clerk. Well, good, I need some more tape, so... Jewel was overweight, unfit, earnest, not too bright, and believed unquestioningly in the values of American law and order. He's played here by an actor called Paul Walter Hauser, best known for playing some of the dumbest characters in films like Black Klansman and I, Tonya. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. Richard Jewell is on duty at a concert taking place during the Olympics when he sees a suspicious knapsack. And at the same time, there's been a phoned-in bomb threat. To his credit, Jewell acts fast, calls in the real police and tries to clear the area. The bomb goes off, but lives are saved and Richard Jewell is hailed, initially, as a hero. You always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewell fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. But it doesn't last. The FBI become frustrated by their lack of progress and start looking for an easy suspect. And the pressures of the 24-hour news cycle lead the local media to cut corners too and treat FBI suspicions as proven fact. There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. You set that bomb. There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. I don't know how to protect you. The suspicion turns on Jewel, a loner who lives with his mother, an Oscar-nominated performance from Kathy Bates. The media swarm around Richard and Bobby Jewel. The cops and the FBI try every trick in the book to get a confession. But fortunately, Richard Jewel happens to know a lawyer. You're a suspect. You don't talk. I talk. Say it. I don't talk. This might be the only way to clear your name. I want you to say there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Jewel actually worked at Watson Bryant's law firm years before, and the two hit it off. Just as well, because without Bryant, Richard had every chance of being railroaded by the authorities. Stop trying to be their best friend. I was raised to respect authority. Authorities looking to eat you alive. There's a bomb in Centennial Park. We have 30 minutes. I'm sorry, what? This is the territory you'd expect in a Clint Eastwood movie, perhaps, especially the idea that big government isn't necessarily your friend in a situation like this. But lest you think we're diving into right-wing, deep-state paranoia, Eastwood carefully points out what was really going on here. And don't keep calling him sir. 
Well, they're still the United States government. No, they aren't the United States government. They're just three pricks who work for the United States government. You understand the difference? Nobody in that room is a better man than you. You understand? This film isn't against the system as such, just the lazy assumptions that led, in this case, to the impending miscarriage of justice. And the secrets of Richard Jewell's success are, as usual in an Eastwood film, pace, clarity, and very good casting. I report the facts. You've ruined this man's life. There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Do a couple in a row. My son save people's lives. Paul Walter Hauser cunningly undercuts your initial impression of this character throughout the film. He's not as dumb as he looks. And there are reliably terrific performances from Sam Rockwell, Olivia Wilde and cast against type John Hamm as a vindictive FBI agent. There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Did he do it? Richard Jewell is an innocent man. He's a hero. There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. One more time, just a little louder. This film seems to be so scrupulously well-researched and accurate that I dreaded that it was going to leave us hanging at the end as to what actually happened. Don't worry, all is revealed. Clint Eastwood hasn't stayed in the business this long by cheating his audience like that. I think your client is guilty as hell. They want to fry you. You ready to start fighting back? The last novel published in Jane Austen's lifetime, Emma, has been a favourite on film, on stage, in TV versions. There's even been a web series based on the character. 1996 was a good year for Emma's. Aside from a straight version starring Gwyneth Paltrow, there was writer-director Amy Heckerling's delightful high school comedy Clueless, based on Jane Austen's blueprint. Hello, there was a stop sign. I totally paused. You tried driving in platforms. Oh, should I write them a note? Ew, get off of me. Ah, as if. Well, 24 years later seems a good time for a new version. Certainly none of the Emmas of the past were so definitive that they precluded the opportunity for a good modern one. This one house... You will never guess what has happened. Robert Martin has offered me his hand. Do you advise me? Oh, no, no, no. The words must be your own. But I confess I was a little uncertain about the credentials of the cast and crew of this production. Neither the director, the exotically named Autumn DeWilde, nor the writer, New Zealand novelist Eleanor Catton, have much of a feature film track record yet. And the cast, led by one Anya Taylor-Joy as Emma, have mostly appeared in minor television, with a couple of stellar exceptions. Dearly beloved friends... We gather here in this time of man's great innocence. Innocence? Innocence? No? It's Bill Nye playing Emma's father, Mr Woodhouse. But despite his starring role in the trailers, it's a very minor role, as is the other biggish name, Miranda Hart, slumming as the gauche Miss Bates. With whom will you dance? Mother, you must sample the tart. 
Emma opens by identifying Miss Woodhouse as handsome, clever and rich, obsessed with interfering in the love lives of her neighbours. Having successfully married her best friend to the suitable Mr Weston, she turns her attention to the unfortunate Harriet Smith, who seems determined to marry someone unsuitable. You must be the best judge of your own happiness. I have now quite determined and really almost made up my mind to refuse Mr Martin. Emma bullies Harriet into turning Farmer Martin down to the disapproval of her distant relative, Mr Knightley. Knightley is appalled at Emma's constant meddling and sparks fly. Emma. Mr Knightley. This is your doing. She is the natural daughter of nobody knows. Sorry, Upon my word. It is a truth universally acknowledged, to coin a phrase, that any adaptation of a Jane Austen novel should stick as close as possible to the original structure. So much, in fact, that one assumes the plot and characters of a property like Emma are essentially director-proof. But clearly, that's not necessarily the case. You should not make matches. Whatever you say always comes to pass. Mr Elton, Miss Harriet Smith, he's in love with you. Anya Taylor-Joy is certainly striking looking with her retrousse nose and wide-set model's eyes. And Johnny Flynn as Mr Knightley seems an affable enough chap, but leads in a Jane Austen story as if. She always declares that she will never marry. I have no thoughts of matrimony at present. Which, of course, means just nothing at all. You must never leave me, Emma. Good heavens, have I missed the party? I'm not quite sure what this production is trying to do exactly as it fiddles with the novel's storyline to no particular advantage and throws in its random sort of jokes to... to what? Give the story a little novelty or something? Who can think of Miss Smith when Miss Woodhouse is near? Mr Elton! Oh, dear. I know that, believe it or not, there are people in the world who aren't particular fans of the divine Miss Austen. Curiously, this film seems to have been made by and for these unfortunates, determined to prove their prejudices justified. The scenes seem to have very little connection with each other, the actors are equally adrift, the clothes are frequently bizarre, and the music, half Vivaldi, half rural folk singing, is mostly annoying. Mr Elton! I never thought I'd ever give any Jane Austen adaptation a bad review. I was even prepared to enjoy the Billy Piper Mansfield Park. But this really is a bit of a mess, I'm afraid. To quote Mr Knightley, badly done, Emma. Badly done. Miss Woodhouse! Miss Woodhouse! Such news! Ever since he launched the incredibly strange film festival all those years ago, Ant Timpson's name has been associated with edgy, bizarre, confrontational and occasionally gloriously inspired. Since then, he's also been the convener and curator of the extraordinary riches of the 48-hour film challenge, but it's clearly not enough. Yeah. It's me. Norm. I got your letter. I never thought I'd see you again. 
He's crossed the line as first producer of his own films, titles like Housebound, Deathgasm, The Field Guide to Evil and The Notorious Greasy Strangler. And now, look out, Sam Raimi, Eli Roth and John Carpenter. And Timpson joins them as a fully-fledged director. His first film has the ominous title, Come to Daddy. And welcome to the show. Wow, thank you, Simon. Quite an introduction. If this is not actually your first crack at directing, according to IMDb. You once made a short film called Crab Boy, didn't you? I did. I did, I did the, the classic first film, angst-ridden, first time out of the gate, black and white, 35mm short. It's rather experimental, inspired by the works of Todd Browning. Yeah, I've just been revisiting it. I hadn't seen it for a long time. It was kind of hidden. Crazy enough, there's actually some similar themes to, to Come to Daddy involving... It- fathers and sons. Well, I was going to ask about that because, I mean, this thing was, believe it or not, was actually inspired by, as they say, real-life events. This is a, It was inspired by your own um, relationship with your father, wasn't it, in some ways? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of how I, a lot of sons are sort of in awe and, and sometimes abject terror of their dads throughout their lives, it was more inspired by his passing than anything and just those unanswered questions that sons and fathers have and I guess mothers and daughters as well. When, when, when There's things you wish you'd said and got off your chest before they they go and you never do even even if you think you do have those heart-to-heart ones there's always going to be questions that um, are never going to be fulfilled so that's kind of um, a lot of the meat to the history of the film and then the process of dealing with the grief as partner at the time thought it would be really good to have this cathartic experience of being with the body for over a period of a week so the siblings uh, all did that and then I had my and amongst all that I spent probably most of the time with him at night in a coffin uh, in his house sleeping in his bed and and wearing and smelling his clothes and getting into that whole grieving process, which was extraordinary, uh, creepy, surreal, sad and heartbreaking. Everything rolled into one. It was, I felt it was like Looney Tunes at the time, but I'm so glad it happened. I wish everyone could go through it. I think we might be giving the audience a slightly distorted view of what this movie is about, because I can tell you right now, there's not a lot of sitting around the place and musing about mortality. I was trying to set it up as a very classy film, so, um, but yes, it's not, a, it's not an angst-ridden, um, maudlin melodrama. It's a wild, dark comedy ride. I don't know about your family, but our family definitely used gallows humour a lot of the time to deal with <laughs> with horrific, tragic events. So, and I think possibly it is instinctually a Kiwi thing to brush off horrible things with a, with a bit of humour as a coping mechanism. It is a very Kiwi film in some respects, particularly in its attitude to swearing, which is enthusiastic, I think you could say, in this one. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, the film is actually shot in Canada, isn't it? It was on an island in Canada, and we just ended up shipping a lot of Kiwis up because it was summer, and we just turned into a big sort of summer camp for everyone. And even though... All filmmaking is like hell on earth. It's always a struggle and a battle. It was a really nice sort of uh, meshing between the two countries because, you know, these days, every one of these sort of films at this budget level are kind of co-productions. That's sort of where we're heading in this world. It's the days of single funding from any one sort of entity are, yeah. are kind of long gone. So they have to be these sort of multi-country. And even Ireland was involved in this one as well. But yeah, it was a, it was a true collaboration. Uh, it definitely, to me, feels distinctly Kiwi, mainly just because, uh, hopefully, it's me oozing out throughout the film. <laughs> My You've got a really interesting cast here, actually. I mean, that seems to scream indie. Well, he's basically a New Zealander anyway, is Elijah Wood, who is, I'm sure people know from Lord of the Rings and many other great movies. He and I were old friends, so he was the first person I sort of approached with the script, uh, which is written by Toby Harvard, who's a, a writer that we'd worked with together on The Greasy Strangler. And once he was on, then it was a lot easier to sort of approach 
other actors, and I've always loved the work of Stephen McHaddy, who is a, a phenomenal Canadian actor who's been acting for 50-plus years, uh, who terrified me because I'd seen red carpet interviews with him where he destroyed journalists, and I was <laughs> really, really looking forward to being put under the gun by him. And then um, Martin Donovan's in it. He's fascinating. He's probably been in more indie films than anybody in the world, I would say, Martin Donovan. Well, yeah, those with a long, long memory probably remember Martin from um, his association with Hal Hartley's movies. Then he's just gone on to be in all types of genres and um, you know, huge films and smaller films. And um, and then we've got Madeline Sami, of course, who does a, a beautiful uh, comic turn in the film at a surprise moment, which I don't want to get into spoiler. It's a very spoiler-heavy movie. Film. It's going to be very difficult, and I don't want to tell the story, so I think perhaps it might be over to you here, and just at, at least set up the, the beginning set of the, the movie. Premise. Yeah, what's the premise? First of all, it's not a, um, a sleazy film. Let's just get it out of the way. With a title like Come to Daddy, <laughs> their mind goes straight to the gutter. But it's really a reunion film between a father and son. And Elijah Wood plays a hipster, L.A. Uh, pretentious DJ um, associated with the music industry who's been brought up and uh, surrounded by wealth in Beverly Hills. And he gets a, a letter out of the blue from his estranged dad that he hasn't seen for 30 years. So we kind of kicked the film off with um, him knocking on the door and meeting his dad, who is not what he thought it was going to be a heartwarming, lovely reunion. It's a very awkward bonding between the two of them before things start going even more awry. It's a film where we wanted to really take people on a, on a lot of chicanes, and just when they think it's playing out the way it's expected, um, we do a 180 handbrake and, and try something new. And I really love those sort of films that don't play out in a pedestrian manner, because I just mm. feel like we get you know dumbed down to all the time, so it's nice to keep them on their toes. One thing about the horror scene right now, Anton, you'd probably know more about this than anybody, is that it's changed quite a bit. It's a lot creepier in a lot of ways. I think of the works of Jordan Peele, Get Out and Us, yeah. and also particularly Ari Aster, who did a movie that I could barely watch called Hereditary and another one called Midsummer this year. Yeah. Look, there's, there's new terms for all these films. Like, I, I don't call uh, my film a straight-out horror film by a long shot because it's definitely more of the sort of British comic thrillers that I grew up with in the in the 70s is the vein. But no, they used to have the term elevated horror, which is basically mean well-written horror. Uh, and then now now the, the great one is adjacent horror is the big term that they use for sales <laughs> for these films. What does um, that mean? Horror Sorry, horror, horror adjacent is, is the term yeah, that I've heard popping up quite a few times. People say, I just don't like horror films. And it's like, well, it's not really. It's like you, you might, you know, did you like Fargo? Great. Well, then you might like this. It's frustrating as a filmmaker that people want to put your thing into the small chamber when you know that you know, it might appeal to a wider audience than that. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up being best friends. Come here. Come to daddy. And Timson, whose first film as a director, Come to Daddy, opens in cinemas around the country this week. And that brings this week's show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.